One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases. And it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Inflammation Nation podcast. We're still talking about this concept of the functional hierarchy. This is, I believe, episode six in that series. And we're going to move on from the blood sugar stuff to adrenal dysfunction. But just as a quick review, last week, uh, we concluded the discussion on metabolic flexibility and how that's a necessary part of health. And that metabolic flexibility, this concept, is the ability to use either fat or carbohydrates as a fuel source. And like I mentioned in another episode, the concept sometimes gets restrained to just the fat as fuel side of that equation. And people, doctors included, lose sight of the carbohydrate side. Meaning that in a world where so many people are carbohydrate intolerant or carbohydrate sensitive, yet eating carbohydrate dominant diets, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we should be able to eat some carbohydrates without having negative consequences. And so I would say that there's a difference between opting into a ketogenic or a low-carb diet as a choice rather than being forced into it by necessity. And what I mean by that is if you find yourself going low-carb or keto and optimizing fat as fuel because you can't eat carbohydrates without the downside, then you've got a problem, and it's probably best to fix that. And in that case, the low-carbohydrate diet or the keto diet is a crutch. It's a, it's a patch job, and you're just simply compensating for a problem that you haven't fixed. But that's not to say that we should be able to eat as many carbs as we want without having some boundaries, right? But who's to say what those boundaries are? Uh, just like I wouldn't tell someone to eat hundreds of grams of fat, I also wouldn't tell most people to eat hundreds of grams of carbohydrates, not unless they're, say, a very large, very well-muscled, very active person engaged in activities that demand carbohydrates as glucose for immediate energy, and that's the best way that they perform. So when you kind of pull back and look at both sides of this metabolic flexibility equation, it's about balance and control and working not just within the general guidelines that apply to most people, but knowing not just your own, limit, your own limitations, but the sources of those limitations as well. If you're low-carb or keto and you feel much better than even, even eating moderate carbohydrates, but you're still eating less than the average North American, are you just blindly sticking to your diet as the final solution? Or are you asking yourself why you can't tolerate even a modest amount of carbohydrates? And maybe that's a better question. All right, so let's move on. Let's go to the next item in our list of functional priorities. Remember that we're talking again about this functional hierarchy to help us understand which problems to tackle first when more than one thing is wrong. So we started with blood flow and blood supply to tissues. We moved into things like iron or B12 sufficiency, particularly not having anemias. These are things that reduce what's needed to make energy at the cellular level, oxygen. 
Then we moved on to blood sugar issues like reactive hypoglycemia, insulin resistance, because most people are running carbohydrate dominant diets and expecting to get most of their fuel from glucose and not from fat. The next priority on our list then is adrenal dysfunction. And here's why. When insulin and glucagon, or while insulin and glucagon are major players in how we control blood sugar levels, another player is the adrenal hormone called cortisol. Because the role of cortisol is to help glucagon in its ability to increase blood sugar on demand by breaking down glycogen in the liver so that it can be exported into the bloodstream and made available to other tissues like your muscles or your brain. Now, we all know cortisol as the major stress hormone. We often refer to it as the fight or flight hormone, and it certainly is that. Under periods of acute or prolonged stress, cortisol elevates and plays a role in making sure that we have enough energy to meet the physiological demands of stress. So the easiest way to understand this is to ask yourself whether it takes more or less energy to run from a bear than set, say, at your campsite, campsite fire, you know, roasting a marshmallow, for, for example. Well, of course, it takes more energy to run from the bear. More energy is required to meet the demands of stress to, in that case, run or fight for your life. But most of us don't find ourselves in these life-threatening situations, but we are quite often put under stress that goes above and beyond the stresses of normal day-to-day living. Now, you might remember in the past when we talked about stress, we said that some stress is not just normal, it's actually desirable because stressors of different kinds trigger adaptive responses that keep us healthy. So for example, without free radicals, we wouldn't make as many antioxidants. And without the load of, or the stress of external loads or resistance, our bones and muscles don't adapt and become denser and stronger. And without cognitive challenges, we don't become smarter and mentally sharper. In fact, without those stressors, we lose things that we had already gained. So some stress is good. And we expect there to be times when cortisol is higher than at other times. For example, once I'm done this podcast, I'm going to head to the gym. And when I do, my cortisol will probably be higher than when I worked out into the gym because intense exercise can increase cortisol. But a few hours after that, my cortisol levels are going to be back down to baseline to what is normal for that particular time of the day. So your adrenal system is designed to increase cortisol during periods of increased demand and stress and then return to baseline. But that's now not how it works for some people, people with adrenal dysfunction. Some people get stressed and have their cortisol elevate and then it stays elevated when it shouldn't. And sometimes cortisol goes higher than it should, or it stays elevated longer than is healthy. And at other times, other people's systems don't elevate enough to meet the demands of stress. Now, I have several complaints about things that I hear online about adrenals and cortisol. And we'll take these things one at a time, and I I might end up blending them together just because some of these are very closely related. But First, first problem that I have is that, and this is something I've covered before, this concept of how adrenal fatigue is not 
physiologically correct. Like you have a lot of doctors, particularly in the conventional community, that'll say, well, adrenal fatigue is not a real, real thing. Well, they're partly right and they're partly wrong. They're wrong in the sense that there certainly are states of adrenal dysfunction that have nothing to do with pathological conditions, for example, like Addison's or Cushing's disorders. But they're wrong in the sense, I'm sorry, they're right in the sense that um, adrenal fatigue is a misnomer. This is the same problem that we see with very narrow and incomplete understandings of the thyroid system, where the whole focus is on the thyroid gland with hypothyroidism. And again, I've covered this in, in prior episodes, but with hypothyroidism, most people think about the gland itself when the problem is almost always thyroid autoimmunity, which is an immune dysfunction that's causing the thyroid gland to not work properly. The problem is not the gland itself. In fact, the thyroid gland in that case is an innocent bystander. The problem is, in fact, immune dysregulation. But unless your focus is on the entire thyroid system and not just the gland, you get locked into either a drug replacement therapy approach like taking Synthroid or Levothyroxine, or if you're a natural practitioner, then you get locked into uh, using tyrosine and iodine and selenium because you think, well, that's what the gland needs to make thyroid hormones. Therefore, that's what I should give somebody. And, and both approaches, both natural and conventional, ignore the root cause when the focus is solely on thyroid gland itself. And the same can apply to the adrenal system. The concept of adrenal fatigue or exhaustion makes one think that the problem is chronic stress and that this has fried your adrenal glands and your glands are failing. They're too tired, hence adrenal fatigue and exhaustion, to respond in the way that they should. Again, the focus is just on the gland and not on the system. But let me tell you this, that in every single case, adrenal dysfunction, adrenal dysfunction is secondary to something else. It is always secondary to something else. Even when we see causes of true glandular failure, it's almost always Addison's disease, which is a, an, an adrenal autoimmunity, just like Hashimoto's is a thyroid autoimmunity. But in Addison's disease, the immune system is attacking and destroying the adrenal gland. Again, the gland is the innocent bystander, right? It's just doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and, and just simply supporting the adrenal gland in someone who has Addison's disease with gland-related nutrients like B vitamins or vitamin C is suboptimal at best. And it's a losing strategy at its worst because the problem in that case, again, is the immune system. So you have to look at the whole system. You can't just focus on the gland itself. And to be honest, at this point in my career, I've run thousands, if not tens of thousands, of salivary adrenal panels to check how much cortisol people are making throughout the day and to ensure that their circadian rhythm follows a proper diurnal pattern that allows cortisol to be high in the morning and low at night. And I can tell you for a fact that most people who have been told or who think they have adrenal fatigue, in fact, do not. But they often have adrenal dysfunction, right? Where they might be making enough total cortisol throughout the day, but the rhythm and timing of how it's being produced and parceled out into circulation. And, and so the rhythm and timing is off. Or maybe they, they have only periods of time during the day when cortisol is too low, but other times it's perfectly normal. Maybe it's even high. There are too many possible combinations to describe here, but you can take it to the bank 
that many people who think their adrenals are fried and tired and exhausted have something else creating whatever symptoms they're basing that assessment on. And the only way to know for sure is to run a proper salivary adrenal panel with four cortisol samples spread throughout the day, about every four hours, plus a DHEAS or sulfated DHEA test. That's how you know that you know. So this first thing that I have a problem with is the constant, constant reference to these ideas of adrenal fatigue and adrenal exhaustion. It's just not physiologically correct. Now, second is, is the assumption that general relationships outlined in medical research, most of which is done in animals. And let me back up. The second problem that I have is the assumption that general relationships outlined in medical research, which are true for larger populations, also holds true in cases of individuals within that larger group. And let me restate that just to make sure that I'm clear. And, and by the way, remember that one of the tenets of autonomous health and functional medicine is the concept of biochemical individuality. In many ways, we're all the same. But at the same time, we all differ in very key and fundamental ways. And so what is generally true of a group is not always true of an individual Yet we have people all over the internet summarizing research, talking about papers that were just published. Quite often, they're based on large studies across broad populations. And then they take that conclusion and go, well, this happens. And this happens all the time. And it happens exactly like this. And that's simply not necessarily true. So if you're online and you're listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos or Instagram reels or TikTok videos. You're listening to biohackers, most of whom are, how can I say this kindly, non-credential people with zero clinical experience. They say things in absolute terms. Like this study says that when this happens, this also happens and they make it absolute. Like it's, well, if, if it's A and B, it's A and B all the time. And again, these statements that we see in medical research might be true in general, but are not necessarily true in individual people in specific circumstances. And maybe this is a ridiculous example, but it's generally true that humans have two legs. <laughs> but quite clearly, all humans, not all individual humans, have two legs. Some people have one leg. They were born that way. Or maybe someone had a leg amputated or Someone fighting for our country and our freedom got it blown off with an IED. Some people have no legs. Some people are born that way. Some people lose their legs. So clearly, it's generally true that humans have two legs, but not all humans have two legs. And it's the same problem, as I said. You know, this is, and this is a key to being able to filter out some of the more grandiose statements that online experts are making about the adrenals or the thyroid or intermittent fasting is a big one or ketogenic diet or whatever. Like just because something's generally true doesn't mean it's always true. Here's another example. You'll again, you'll hear from online experts, some of whom are credentialed clinicians with clinical experience, but I just mentioned intermittent fasting, right? So sometimes you'll have these credentialed people with clinical experience summarizing intermittent fasting research and how when you hit 
say 14 hours of fasting, this specific thing happens. And when you hit 16 hours, another process really takes off and so on. But I don't know if you know this, but most of the research on things like intermittent fasting, particularly things like autophagy and fasting or nutrient restriction <laughs> have been done not just with animals, but with fungi. Most of the stuff is not studied in humans. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to humans. But like I said, you hear people summarizing research and making grandiose statements and acting as if just because something's published in one or two or perhaps three papers that X, Y, and Z is always X, Y, and Z without any exceptions. Not always true. Now, I understand that we do all kinds of beneficial research on animals and microbes that we can't ethically do on humans, but come on, let's, let's all use a little bit of discernment. So here are a couple of takeaways. Remember that what is generally true of the larger population may not be true of you as an individual. So be careful about listening to broad sweeping statements that may not be true for you. Well, maybe they are, but maybe they're not. You are an individual. This is another takeaway. You're an individual and you're, you and your doctor should be treating you that way. And finally, to bring this back around with the adrenals and cortisol, adrenal dysfunction is always secondary to something else. And, and the trick is to understand where the stress that causes adrenal dysfunction comes from and to understand how this can disrupt other systems that the adrenal system is connected to, like blood sugar control or thyroid function or immune balance and control. And this is what we'll talk about in the next episode. We'll talk about the broad applicability, why it's important to understand your adrenal status, your circadian rhythm, and do you or do you not have adrenal dysfunction. But it's important if you do identify that an adrenal dysfunction exists. It's not just to launch into taking supplements to support your adrenals, but number one, to support the appropriate mechanism, but number two, to identify the core problem that's causing the adrenal dysfunction. For example, is it chronic psychological or emotional stress? Maybe you're in a job that you really hate and every single day you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm depressed, I don't want to go in, and that's your stressor. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's a financial circumstance. Maybe you're just really stressed about the world and society and the economy. Maybe you just broke your leg. Maybe you're in a car accident. <laughs> you know, who knows? There are so many different things that can promote adrenal dysfunction. The problem, and like I said, it's about making sure that you focus on the right thing. See the system, understand the system, understand what affects the system, and don't focus too much on one particular portion until you understand the whole thing. And we'll talk about that next time. But before I go, can I ask that you show your support for the podcast by making sure that you subscribe? Most of you are listening on Apple or iTunes. And obviously, the more subscribers we have, opposed to people who just listen without subscribing, moves us up in the rankings so that others can discover the work that we do. So please take a moment, hit the subscribe button, mark that bell to get notified one when new episodes come in. So we're going to call it a wrap for this episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is an extension of my private practice where I work one-on-one -on -one 
with people who have complex health issues. Most of my clients have seen many other doctors without much success and many, but not all, have some form of autoimmune issue. Hashimoto's hypothyroidism being the most common one. And yes, adrenal dysfunction is very common in most of the clients that I work with. Not all of them, but very common. But whether you have a simple or complex case or problem, if your goal is to figure out the root cause of your complaints and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get better, namely good diagnostics that are focused on you and your problem, employing diet and lifestyle changes that might be appropriate, personalized supplementation, then maybe you and I should talk. So you can find a contact on my website, contact form on my website, which is drknowsworthy.com. Or you can use the contact information that is in the episode description. All right, guys, I will see you in the next episode.